Good morning. Very thankful to have the opportunity to lead us in worship today. You know, the Bible reminds us that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together and to use that opportunity to encourage each other. So let's do that this morning. Let's stand as we prepare to worship today and just look at your neighbor and tell them you're really glad to see them in God's house this morning. Let's sing. Welcome to worship this morning. We are so glad that you are here. You may go ahead and be seated this morning. We are glad that you are here to worship with this this morning on this summer morning. And we are glad that we can come into the house of the Lord and praise his name this morning. I'm glad for that freedom that we have to do that this morning. If you're a visitor, we are so glad you are here. We want to take the opportunity to get to know you a little bit. In your worship guide, you will notice there's a blue card, and on it, if you'll place your information, and if you're a first-time guest at the end of our service, Pastor Stewart will be at the back, and he would love to give you a copy of his book, The Privilege to Worship, okay? Thank you for being here, and join me as we pray this morning. Oh God, we will call upon your name. We are so grateful that we have a loving Father that we can call on God. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would just worship you. We would allow you to work in our hearts and in our minds, God, and that you would transform us into your likeness, Lord God. And that we would be that we would be touched and moved today and that we would go out of your house and we would proclaim your name to this world, to this city, to this state, to the nation and to the world. God, we love you and we thank you for the privilege that we have to worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Good morning. All right. My name is Darlene Tullis. And I'm Matt Tullis. And we are the couple who is leading Marriage by Design at the last weekend of the month. And we wanted to this morning just give you a little taste of what you can expect 
on the marriage retreat. There will be uh, a lot of drama. There will be time for you as a couple. But not emotional drama. Not Real. bad drama. Yeah. Good drama. But there will be time for you as a couple to uh, have some time to vision cast, to think about your marriage and dream a little bit. Um, we'll have a lot of fun. There'll be laughs. We'll be talking about improving communication. So we really hope that you'll make it a priority. I know the summer's kind of crazy and people are traveling and in and out of town. But let me just extend a personal invitation to you to make it a priority to come. Uh, the deadline for signing up for $30 to $5 a couple is tomorrow. So you can go online and sign up. And let me also encourage you, I know in my life, I have several people who I know whose marriages are struggling. And maybe you have a neighbor or a friend that you would just say, hey, why don't you come go to this event with us? And that would be a great way to bring some other people into our church as well. So um, we're thrilled to be with you this morning, and we want to share one of the sketches that we'll do on the marriage retreat that's called Looks. At first, there was a glance. I saw her in a crowded room. Through the noise and obstacles. I saw her. I was suspended in time. Weightless. It was back when we both were skinny. Motionless. He said he was frozen by my beauty. Or maybe the air conditioning was up too high. I don't know. There I was. And there I was. We were, we were both, both there together. together. And yet, we knew not each other. We were void of name and telephone number. We were strangers. I glanced. And I glanced. Oh, oh what, what glances. glances. At first, short glances. But very soon, the glances turned into... Stairs. We, liked, we looked at each other and we liked what we saw. We stared over dinner. At fancy restaurants. We stared at each other during church. When we should have been staring at Stuart. <laughs> he would even stare during football games. She would even stare during clearance sales. We ogled. Funny word, but quite fitting. Webster defines it as to stare with great desire. We were in love. We desired each other. We wanted to look at each other all the time. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part. So we stared at the altar. And we received a license to stare. <laughs> then... Very shortly after we received permission to stare. Day and night. Night and day. All the time. We, we saw, saw everything. everything. And the stairs turned into glares. Sorry I'm late, honey. We played an extra nine holes. <sighs> Glare. Happy birthday, sweetheart. You're going to love this new Black & Decker Power Drill I bought you. <laughs> Glare. Uh, hey, how about tonight? Uh, I'm too tired. Glare. Then... Football. Glare. More football. Glare. More football. Glare. No more football. Great. But more basketball. Glare. Then... Another pair of shoes. Glare. Waiting while I curl my hair. Glare. Facebook binges at Gl bedtime. Glare. And so the story goes. And the more we glared, the less we stared. We never again thought about ogling, but... A stare every now and then would be nice. You know, we can raise kids, climb the ladder, go to church. We can do just about anything without even looking at each other. Don't we want to see? I'm his wife. He once glanced my way and said, wow. I'm her husband. She used to love to look at me, and now it seems like the only time that she looks at me is when she wants something. Not only does he not look at me, he doesn't even look at what I do. Ladies, he thinks that clean socks just somehow fly from the laundry hamper into the washer and dryer and back into the magic drawer. She used to look at me with such respect, but now she doesn't even care about my needs. Making love? What a misnomer. See, for me, it's turned into a duty. How can I possibly enjoy intimacy with someone who doesn't even look at me deeply. You know, I used to laugh at how the King James Version referred to sex as knowing, but now I understand. How can you truly know a person who doesn't even look at you deeply? Is there a cure for blindness? Is there any surgery that could remove emotional cataracts? It all started 
with a glance. Can we find that glance? Will we look at each other? Deeply? Will, Will we? we? The good news is that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new. She is a new creation. creation. And God has given to us a new ministry. The ministry of healing and reconciliation. That look. The fire of the relationship lost because of anger. Hurt. Disillusionment. Fear. That, that look, look can, can be, be found, found through, through Christ. Christ. Father, we thank you that you can restore the look of love in our lives and our relationships. Father, I pray that you'll continue to mold us as families because we know the church is only as strong as its families. Father, more than anything, we want to see the weekend that is ahead at the end of this month be a time of reconciliation for couples who are in difficulty and for those couples that are thriving. We pray that they'll come and that they'll be taken to an even greater level of intimacy and love for each other, God. So we just ask you to do that because that's only something that, that you can do. Father, I pray that our look will be a look of love, redemption, and ultimately a look to you for worship. And we worship you this morning. Thank you, God, for being a God of reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. Powerful. Yes, I agree. Thank you for being here. You know, while our works don't, don't uh, have anything to do with our salvation, we are certainly called upon by the Lord to serve him and to do uh, what he has appointed us to do. So let's sing this morning, serve the Lord with gladness, whatever he has for us to do. This is our hymn number 382. take to the world the story of Jesus Christ let's stand as we sing this first second and last verses this morning I will sing the wondrous story
to be in God's house this morning. Let me see a smile on your face. Let's worship the Lord. Let's sing the last verse. He will keep me to me. remain standing as we sing and prepare to receive our offerings this morning down at the cross where our Savior died. Amen. Let's sing. Thank you for this day and this, this time of worshiping you. Lord, uh, at this time we present our offerings and thank you for the blessings that you bestow upon us. We ask that you bless the gift and the givers. And Lord, that you be with Stuart as he delivers your message. In your almighty name I pray. Amen. Like a vessel 
broken and useless sometimes I feel cast aside and I need a gentle touch of your spirit to make me So mend me, sweet Holy Spirit, and refill me with the oil and the wine. Restore me with love and compassion. me over and over again and when I'm faced with life's troubles and trials and so often tempted and tried and my faith, it grows ever so fragile Till I feel shattered and broken inside So mend me, sweet And refill me with the oil and the wine. Restore me with love and compassion. Use me Thank you, Daryl. I'm sorry, I'm a little OCD. Can't stand. There we go. <laughs> uh, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to Malachi chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5 is where we're going to be covering today as we continue our series, Malachi, a passion for God. Have you ever been through a time? where you felt like evil was being blessed. You know those times where the lazy coworker gets the promotion while you, the hardworking person, gets passed over. Or you struggle as a young Christian couple to have a baby while the druggies and the unwed teenagers have no problem. Or maybe you've just gone through something and you've thought, where is God in all of this? Have you ever been there? This means yes, this means no. I think everyone would say, you know, at some point in my life, I've been there. And if you haven't, you will. Why does it seem sometimes that evil is blessed? Why are there times sometimes where we ask, where is God? Have you ever wanted to say in one of those times, God, if you would just show up in a pillar of fire like you did for the Israelites, that would be really great just to remind me that you are actually there. I'd even take the pillar of cloud if you can't do the fire thing. 
Times like that come. And you've been there, I've been there, we'll be there again. But today, we're going to be challenged by Malachi to remember that when evil seems blessed, remember, God is just. Here in this passage, while we want to be passionate for God, we find out that there are times that spiritual joy is sucked right out of us because we kind of think that God has gone AWOL. And the Israelites in Malachi's day were experiencing a time like that. They faced struggles even 150 years after the first Israelites had returned to Jerusalem from exile. And you would think that after 150 years, things would have improved or, and getting a little better, but unfortunately that was not the case. Stricken by poverty, enslaved by pagans, um, pressured by foreign nations, the Israelites were struggling with their own passionate pursuit of God. And so they watched as people were committing serious sins, but they seemingly escaped without any consequences. And so uh, the people wondered, where is this God about whom we were taught? Where is the pillar of fire? Where, where is the wall-crumbling power of Jericho's God? Where was just a good old-fashioned plague of locusts when you needed one to do business against the pagans and show God, show them who was boss? So as wickedness seemed blessed, the Israelites were losing faith, and so they cried out to God, and they complained to God, much like I have, much like you have in our circumstances, and God certainly took notice. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? You see, the Israelites were blaming God for their problems. They were saying three things about him that we see in verse 17. First, they said, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. They were accusing God of lacking moral judgment. Like he couldn't tell the difference between good and evil or righteousness and unrighteousness. Everybody knows that guy is evil. Why is God blessing him? That was the rebuke. Second, they said, and he is pleased with them. They actually thought God was cheering on these unrighteous pagans. And then third, they accused God of being AWOL. Where is the God of justice, they asked. They're, they were in the process of giving up on God. They were crying and wailing and praying, oh God, why? Why are you blessing the wicked? Why are you condoning that? Why are you cheering them on? In fact, where are you? So they blamed God for their problems. You know, it's easy to blame someone else for your problems. We learned that as kids. He did it, she did it. But it really goes all the way back to our ancient, 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 ancient ancestors and our sin nature. Remember Adam and Eve? <laughs> Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And if you can't find somebody else to blame, you just blame God. And that's what the Israelites did. And that's what we do sometimes. But did you notice how God replied through Malachi in verse 17? You have wearied the Lord with your words. You know what he's basically saying there? Would you hush? Would you hush? I'm tired. You're wearing me out with all your whining. All this incessant and ridiculous and even blasphemous griping. Evil is good to me? Really? You think I'm cheering on these pagans? Really? You think I'm not here? Really? Hey, I'm speaking to you right now through my prophet. God was tired of their griping just like we get tired of our kids griping sometimes. But notice God wasn't tired of their griping because he lacks compassion. He's a God of compassion. He comforts us in our struggles. 
God was tired of their wailing and griping because they couldn't see that they were doing a lot of wrong things as well. Think about it. These people who were claiming righteousness are the same ones that we've already seen in the book of Malachi who were offering God blemished animals for sacrifices, who were getting tired of serving God, who had failed to tithe, who oppressed their countrymen, who married pagans, who divorced their godly wives for pagan wives. And yes, they suffered, no question about it. Conditions were hard on them, but they themselves were bringing on much of the suffering to themselves. You know, sometimes we do that as well. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, Struggles that come to us are our own doing. They're the result of bad choices. And that can be anything as simple as not eating right, to not taking care of ourselves, to not staying close to God. But when the struggle comes, we don't acknowledge that. Oh no, instead we blame God or we gripe at God when a lot of the fault may be our own. When, and when we do that, God gets just as tired of our complaining as he did the Israelites. Would you just hush? You're wearing me out. Israel's disobedience had wearied God and pushed him to his limits. But God didn't get frustrated with his people because he has a short fuse. He was fed up with their griping because the charges that the people brought against God were very strong. But even more so, they were just plain wrong. What they were saying was nothing short of blasphemy. And still... Even though God has had it in verse 17, here's the awesome thing about God. The question that they end with, where is the God of justice? That question that called God's actual presence and love for them into question, that question would be answered by God himself. And so he was going to come and he was going to answer in the next section of verses, we see that when evil seems blessed, remember, God is just. And he shows us how he is just in these coming verses. The first thing that we see is that God is just in his preparation to come. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? God says, someone is coming. They're going to come and prepare the way for me. Then I am going to come, so get ready. See, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. And I'm coming. Now, this would have excited the Israelites because they knew all about when the Lord came. They knew this day of the Lord was going to be something, or at least they thought they understood it. For them, the day of the Lord was when God was going to come in victory. And God was going to come and destroy their enemies. And so some, some good old-fashioned plagues might even take place. And so when they, when they heard this, they would have been thinking, Yes, come and smite our enemies, almighty smiter. We're ready. And then they'll just sit back and watch it happen under the blue sunshine and in a field of daisies. Now, they're about to be reminded on down that it's not exactly going to be like that. But for now, let's focus on the fact of God's coming, that he is going to come. The fact that he's preparing to come means several things. First, the fact he is preparing to come means that he will indeed come. He's making plans. He says, I'm going to send my messenger ahead. And then he's going to come. The plans are made. Our family took a little three and a half day vacation to Texas Wednesday through yesterday. And the friends that we stayed with will often ask us when we're talking, when are y'all going to come again? When are y'all going to come? And we'll respond, not sure. Maybe the summer, maybe in the fall, maybe in the spring. It's always, we don't really know. 
Well, when I called a few weeks ago and said, hey, Ron and Terry, are y'all going to be home July 12th through 15th? They knew we were making definite plans. They knew we were coming, and so they started coming. Terry texted Rebecca, what do the boys eat? What do they like? What are, what's Zach into? What do y'all want to eat? What, what can we do while we're here? So we prepared, and they prepared. Well, God's plans are the same way. He's making plans to come, and that means he is going to come. Whereas our plans really could have gotten messed up by something, God's plans will not. The fact that he's preparing means he will indeed come. Second, the fact that he's preparing to come means that his coming is going to be great. You know, the best trips are well-planned. When Rebecca and I had our 15th wedding anniversary getaway last summer during our sabbatical, we, we planned and we went to San Diego, California. And it was so great because of the planning we did ahead of time from the Mustang convertible we had rented all the way to the restaurants and sites Leona Criswell had said we just needed to be sure and go see. We had our plan. And the preparation ahead of time helped us to not miss out on anything in that trip. Well, God's preparation means that his coming is going to be great as well. He said he's going to send his messenger ahead of him to prepare the way for him. When I first read this uh, several months ago, Zach was in the, the time of watching uh, Aladdin, Disney's Aladdin several times over. And so I was hearing like every other day, make way for Prince Ali. And so I couldn't help but think of that. And that's basically what was happening. He's going to send this messenger ahead that's going to say, make way for the Lord. And those ancient kings would have people who would go ahead of them. And they would, they would go in and they would even make a highway for the king to come. They would clear out the trees. They would straighten out the ground. They would remove the boulders. They would go to the cities and villages that they were going to be approaching and tell them, hey, get ready. The king is coming. And so there was all of this preparation for the king to come. And when he comes, when this king comes, notice that Malachi says, he is the one you desire. You've been asking for the God of justice to come. Well, he's coming. He's going to be here. He's making preparations. He's on his way. And that's great stuff. I mean, God is coming. He's sending his messenger. He's the one we've been waiting for. But, and there is a but, because third, the fact of his preparation to come means that he's, his coming is not yet, that we have to wait. Waiting is hard, especially waiting for something you want or need. Uh, but God's coming, but we have to wait. The people of Malachi's day had to wait for it all. Everything that Malachi is saying here, they had to wait for everything. We actually only have to wait for part of it. But you see, Malachi's words here are one of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And there's, this is a prophecy looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. But the prophecy that Malachi is sharing here is actually about threefold, though Malachi probably didn't realize that. You see, the Old Testament prophets could, could look into the future as God revealed to them what was going to happen, but it was like a person on flatland looking at a mountain range. When you first come across some of those plains heading into Colorado and you're looking across and, and you finally see the mountains and you see these peaks, from that vantage point, you can't see that between some of those peaks is... Miles and miles and miles, maybe even hundreds of miles. And so that's kind of how the prophets were. They could look ahead and they could see the peaks, but they couldn't see the valleys in between. And so from Malachi's vantage point, he sees it all as one event, but we know that it's about three events. Because first, he sees this forerunner of Messiah coming. And he'll later identify this forerunner as Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah the prophet has already lived and died in the Old Testament chronology by Malachi's time. So who is this Elijah? Well, he's one like Elijah. The New Testament identifies him as John the Baptist. So that part happened. That peak happened. The second peak, Malachi saw Christ's second coming, or he saw his first coming, his advent. That was when he's going to come and following that messenger. And in the New Testament, we even read that Jesus actually came to the temple, his 
temple. And then the third peak Malachi saw was Christ's second coming at the end of the age. And that's what we're going to look at in verses 2 through 5. So Malachi saw each of these peaks all at once. He didn't know how long the wait would be. He didn't know that it was going to be 400 years before the first peak was reached. And then just a matter of years before the second peak was reached. And then now at least over 2,000 years before the third peak was reached. But here's the deal from our perspective. The fact that the first two mountain peaks have been reached reminds us that the third peak will also be reached as well. And we can have hope and we can have confidence. But for now, we have to wait. Do you know waiting isn't always bad? Now, I know it's bad when you're hungry and you're waiting for a seat at a restaurant. And it's bad when you're at Six Flags and waiting on a ride in the 105 degree sun. But waiting isn't always bad, especially when you're waiting on God. Why? Because while God is preparing himself to come, we can prepare ourselves for him to come. We know he's coming so we can be making way for the Lord ourselves. In the midst of your struggle, while you're waiting for God to come or to answer, you can look at your life and get some stuff out of your way that's in your way that's keeping you from going the way God wants you to go. And we all have stuff. We just need to take the time for personal assessment. We all have those rough places that need to be smoothed out. We all have some places where some trees have grown up in the path that need to be cut down. We even all have some boulders that have rolled in that we need to roll out. So what's in your way? What do you need to clear out of your life before God comes or answers? What does he want to do with you or in you while you wait? Because God is in the waiting We need to get prepared during the waiting because God is coming. And when he comes, it's going to be great. And he's going to do some stuff. In fact, that leads us to our next truth. And we're going to look at these next two very briefly. The first is that God is just, not only his preparation to come, but he's just in his refining. Look at verses 2 and 4. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. Malachi uses two images to talk about God's refining process, both fire and soap. The refiner's fire, you know, separated the slag from the metal as it melted down that dross could rise to the top and be skimmed off. Well, soap separates dirt from clothes. And so God is going to cleanse his temple. The dross will be skimmed off. The dirt will be removed. So notice something. The judgment of God holds no threat for God's people who are walking in righteousness. If you don't have any dross in your life, you have nothing to worry about. If you don't have any dirt, there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to take away. But if there's dirt and if there's dross, then the furnace of affliction can be dreadful. The washing machine can beat you and beat that dirt out of you. So notice that that cleansing and that refining is going to begin with the same spiritual leadership that had allowed Israel to go astray and it even led them astray. It starts with those priests. But moreover, once that refining process has occurred, notice what is going to happen. Look again at verse 3. He says, he will sit as a refiner and pure of silver. He will purify the Levites, that's those priests, and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in the former years. The people are going to offer good offerings again. They will bring pleasure and refreshment to God instead of the weariness that their wickedness and their wailing was bringing. The refining process of God is never easy, but it also is never bad. Years ago, 
um, we were talking about something and Sue Miller said something and I think it was in a Wednesday night study or something and she said something that I wrote down and I've repeated many times and never forgot. She's, we were talking about this refining process and how God kind of sifts us at times as you'd sift flour or sift some you know, sand out and Sue said, but after the sifting comes the shifting. After the sifting comes the shifting. Once God has refined us, once he sifted that stuff out, then he can shift us and use us in a new and a better way. So what kind of refining process does God need to do in your life? What does he need to do in your walk with him? What does he need to do in your relationships? What does he need to do in your attitudes? What's he need to do in your mindset? What's he need to do in your work ethic? What's he need to do in your worship? Because you see, God refines all areas. So where is he wanting to sift you so that he can then shift you into a greater time of life? The refining process will happen. It must happen. But it's a whole lot better if you and I submit to it and allow God to do that work than if we kick against it. Finally, not only is God just and is preparing to come and in his refining, but God is also just in his judgment. Look at verse 5. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. The judgment day is coming. This is speaking of that third mountain peak when Christ returns and God says, look, the evildoers, they're going to get their due. But notice something. God isn't just saying, well, y'all are doing fine. I'm going to get the evildoers. He's also letting them to do some self-assessment as well. Notice as he walks through all of these sinners, I guess you'd call them in verse 5, he starts out with with some that are pretty easy targets, the, the sins that everyone could say, oh, yeah, yeah, get them, God. And some could even say, oh, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, I've never done that. But then, as he goes down, he starts hitting home a bit. And the further he continued, the more they probably got uncomfortable. Because while he mentions some of the very things that the pagans were doing to the Israelites... The Israelites couldn't help but see themselves reflected in the statements at well. They were not guiltless. They were, there was plenty of guilt for themselves. And if anyone did miss the fact that God was talking to them, when he says at the end, but they do all this, but they do not fear me, then that's where he included everybody. You're wailing. You're complaining. You're saying strong and wrong things to me. You're blaspheming my name. You're thinking I'm not here. You're offering all of these offerings that aren't even good. You're doing all of these things I can't imagine. That's because you don't fear me, people. And so that brought conviction. Like the cars of a train follow the engine, these sins followed a lack of godly Fear. And a lack of godly fear of the Lord, one commentator said, may be the number one sin in our land. And I think he's right. It's the sin behind so many other sins. When you're not concerned about God, or when you dismiss God, or you don't even believe in God, as many people in our culture today, you can run headway into any type of sin imaginable. But a healthy fear of God can prevent you from some sins just as a healthy fear of your parents can prevent you from doing some things. Anybody grow up like that? You were just a little bit scared of your parents. And that prevented you from doing some things at times. And a healthy fear of God can help us in our lives as well. So if you're dealing with some frustration with God today, if you're wondering where he is, when will he answer, if evil seems blessed, Remember that God is just. And God right now is concerned about you. He's concerned about his relationship with you. He's concerned about where you are in relationship to him. So while you wait for him to come, get close to him. 
while you wait for him to make his preparations, you make some preparations yourselves. While you wait, grow in your trust of him. While you wait, focus on Jesus because he is better than anything else. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will not leave you orphaned. And you never have to wonder where he is. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning thanking you that you are with us and thanking you that even though you call out things in our lives, it's not to crush us, but it's to shift us and it's to do something new. And so, Lord, I pray today that we take this word to heart. And if we're struggling with something, if we're frustrated with you, and if anyone is wondering where you are, that today they have a new hope and they, they're leaning in upon you and trusting you. God, during this time of invitation, we want to connect with you. We want to worship you. We want to declare you as holy. And so, Lord, for those of us who, who are, are walking with you, we pray, God, that uh, you'd help us to just connect with you in a, a special way. Lord, for those in this room who've never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation where they, where they realize they need you to, to be their God, to be the God of justice in their lives, and to point them in the direction they need to go. Lord, it may be others are here today that they need to come and unite with this church family to, so that we might do life together and seek to, to serve you in a lot of ways. And So God, I pray that in this time of invitation, you'll move. You'll help us to follow your call in your lives and we would be obedient. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.